You're listening to the Just Giants podcast with Grump and the Cranky Fan. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud today. Throw that's Shepard, Sterling Shepard inside the thirty. What a comeback by the Giants! Touchdown. Welcome back to Just Giants with Grump and the Cranky Fan, the best damn podcast for the best damn football team. I'm your host, the Football Grump, and with me, as always, is Mike, the Cranky Fan. Grump, for the, the, our loyal listeners out there, we just had the greatest podcast we've ever done. We had about 45 minutes of the best in-depth analysis, Bob Kraft debate, everything. One little problem, though. That's hit that record button. It's, so, you know, we're now at 10.30 p.m. on a Monday night. And we're going to have to do it all over again in a condensed, quick version of this. But uh, Listen, I have an excuse. This is all on me. Um, but I spent literally the whole weekend helping my girlfriend move. Uh, so I, I'm running on very little sleep. and Yeah. It's and, uh, you know, it's it's my fault. But you yeah. know what? The, the Robert Kraft story, let's put it on the back burner. I'm sure it will stay in the media. And if it does, it will make it to next week's. If it blows up, it'll be its own episode. How about that? Yeah, you know something. It's we're not even we're tired of even talking about it. It's not yep. even it doesn't impact the Giants anyway, so whatever. All right, we, so we're gonna we're gonna go over probably the most debated position on the Giants team for over the last five years or so, other than maybe quarterback, and that is the entirety of the offensive line. Um, the offensive line has been. In some Giants fans' eyes, neglected over the last couple years, uh, completely ignored, or just not, uh, you know, prioritized. Or a poor job job at the attempt to rebuild the line, some people would think as well. And a lot of that, the the, the blame square falls squarely in the shoulders of Jerry Reese and um, I don't remember, Mark Ross, Mm -hmm. uh, for for the way they construct their draft board, how they value players. Uh, I could have told you. I mean, Cranky Fan was with me the night that Eric Flowers was drafted. I was, I was the Cranky Fan that night. I did not want him right from the get go. I don't like raw players coming out of ACC, where even then they didn't dominate. Um, and and you know, even the, even the guys that were successful don't really fit the mold of what the coaching staff was doing. You know, like Justin Pugh and Weston Richburg, which that there were just problems communicating what the scheme was versus what the talent worked with. So Dave Gettleman has come in. He has at least told us that there is a vision of an offensive line with hog mollies. And one of the biggest things that he did was bring in Nate Solder at left tackle. Uh, Eric Flowers was previously at left tackle, was clearly a failure at the position, and... um, a fix was made. Uh, an above-average left tackle was brought in where he played uh, above-average, and that's about it. Nothing spectacular, nothing embarrassing, held his own when needed, needed help other times against better defenses, and uh, that's that. Yeah, let, let, let's break this down a little bit because there's a lot to kind of uh, discuss yeah, I, there. I, I just broke down 45 minutes of what was not recorded. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, again... When Gettleman took over as GM, this was an offensive line in distress. 
<laughs> to, to be very honest, you know, the only two guys worth a damn on the offensive line were not coming back. They were free agents. They were and they risk- commanded big money too. They, they commanded because you know, the same reason why everybody complained about Nate Solder was yep. you know there's a lack of available talent on the open market when you know tackles and guards become available, and the decision was made that the health risks of both guys was not worth the amount of money that was required and if people remember it wasn't like the giants were awash in you know so much cap money i mean we spent a lot of cap money the year before rebuilding the defense so you know there's always going to be guys whether in in this town especially whether it's you know the nfl or the yankees or the knicks where all they're ever they're never going to get past the size of the contract where the average fan thinks they know the market, and they think they know what a player is worth relative to everybody else. And even that relative to other, other players seems to skip through the average fan. Nick Solder is a slightly above average left tackle in this league. He's not Jonathan Ogden, but he's also not Eric Flowers. However, the average Giant fan will never get past what they paid for him and that set their expectations of how good he, they thought he really was. I think after a little bit of a, a shaky start where this whole entire offensive line had a shaky start. I mean, you had five new starters at different positions. You had rookies playing. You had, you know, guys that never started before. People switching positions. I'm shocked it played as well as it did, and it was complete garbage in the beginning. Mm-hmm. But he, you know, next to Flowers, which they, you know, they took a shot on and, and you know, they – they got rid of him. Solo became the next person that people started just bitching, and it's completely misguided with the criticism that he got. So, signed to a four-year deal, one year down. He's 30 years old, turning 31 at some point this coming year. Crazy for me to think that he's younger than me. Jesus. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry, Junior. <laughs> um. Where does he factor in for the Giants' plans going forward in your eyes? In my eyes, he's the left tackle for the next three years on this team. Unless, you know, A, he suffers injuries that alter his production going forward, or he just completely falls apart. Um, He's kind of in the, the sweet spot of his career right now. This should be the peak of his career, so I don't expect any sudden drop offs if he was like 35 or 36. You never know with injuries, but to me, I think they're set at left tackle for the next three years. The expectation being that Will Hernandez continues to grow next to him. They, they build that chemistry together, that communication together. Um, we will talk next about from center to right tackle, the rebuild that's required. But I think on that left side, we'll talk about Hernandez in a second. I, I think they have the building blocks for the next few years to build some continuity. Yeah, I think so too. I think he is worth the remainder of his deal. I mean, the the bulk of the way, I mean, I don't want to get too much into money because as we said, it's already kind of irrelevant, but the bulk of his deal is in next year. Um, so the, the next three years, I would say, it's just, it all, it's, it's all the same. So as long as his play doesn't drop off, there's no reason to prioritize replacing him. He's not a Band-Aid. He might be a temporary band-aid, like a, a stitch or something like that, but 
you know, I think that for the next four years, left tackle is not a problem. You know, if they want to get a jump on replacing him, you can think about it in two to three years. No, I think he's more in a stitch. I think he's like a tooth filling where I expect him to do for a long time fill the need. Yes, you have to replace the filling at some point, but, you know, this is not something like just waiting till you know, they're not going to be searching the, uh, you know, the, the cut list to look for his replacement. No, this, of this, course not. This, this is the guy. The left now, tackle position is is far out of the minds of problems right now. Yes. Let's talk, um, about, let's talk about left guard. Okay. Left guard, the, the Giants drafted Will Hernandez last year in the second round, a pick that I absolutely loved, a guy that I, I – Really wanted um, – I mean, I, I was really torn about the number two pick. I kind of felt like maybe trading down and getting Quentin Nelson would be a thing that they could do. But, you know, that's that's a whole thing that involves other teams and trade scenarios and stuff. Staying in their place, I really liked the idea of taking Will Hernandez in the second round, and they did. Uh, coming out of UTEP, the, the guy never won a game but never saw his effort drop off. I mean – one-on-one would just maul defenders into the ground, uh, has the size, has the nasty, has the technique. It was really just a matter of acclimating to a more pro game. And, you know, it was a little sluggish at first for him, but I think Giants fans like Will Hernandez in the latter half of the season and are optimistic about the way that he will play going forward. I think they have themselves a building block on the left side of the line. Yeah, we had our famous uh, get off the ledge episode around week three, I guess it was, or week two. It was two. week two. It was week two, and you know I melted down. He tried to get me off the ledge. He almost jumped. But you know, looking back now at some distance, you know we have to remember we had five new starters at five different positions. We had, you know, we had a rookie left guard. We had basically a rookie center. We had a you know, obviously an NFL caliber right tackle who shouldn't even have been, in, you know, on this team anymore. And implementing a new offense, it was a disaster. Yeah. Um, you know, so there was – it's going to impact everybody. And a part of that's, the, you know, part of why people are upset about Nate Solder. And a part of, you know, Will Hernandez had to learn on the fly in a very, very difficult situation and watch the tape from week two and to watch a tape to week 15, you're going to see quite a difference and quite an improvement. And, and to be fair, I think Hernandez's mistakes early on were exacerbated by a line that in general didn't perform well. I think if you had a line that had three solid starters, one okay guy and a new rookie, you know, you might point out his flaws, but notice more of his successes than you would when you had the, dross that was the offensive yeah. line last year you would say he that was a rookie mistake and you yeah, move exactly. on i mean if you remember when um when eric flowers started a couple you know the very beginning was like i uh, that'll get cleaned up he'll work on his technique but he's just a rookie unfortunately <laughs> the curve never went up and we were still saying the exact same things in his third year and fourth year so yeah i agree um Left guard, uh, I think they they nailed it. Um, yeah. Not something I think that they're worried about in the slightest bit right now. Uh, you so, know, I I think the left side of the line for the next four years looks solid. 
I would say, yeah, I would say stable to start working on becoming solid. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can't hope for more. I mean, when it comes to draft picks, you're kind of rolling the dice. And what you see year one is still not what you're going to get, you would think. Yes. Very, very few players are at their peak in year one. I don't think that... Will Hernandez is at his peak, and you think that he's trending upward based on the year. So, I mean, it's as good as you can hope for. I mean, you really don't get any more than that. Correct. So, the center position is like a whole other scenario. Uh, you know, Weston Richburg departed, commanded big money in San Francisco, where I believe he got hurt, right? He was hurt. He missed quite a bit of time. Yeah. Yes. Um, not to say good riddance, but the Giants did not spend a bunch of money to keep him and therefore were not burned by his injury. Instead, they they really seem to like John Jalapio. Jalapio, I'm still not sure how to say it. I'm going to go Jalapio. with Jalapio. I go with Jalapio. Jalapio? Mm-hmm. All right. Um, who was essentially selling cars, uh, but, you know, the coaching staff really liked him. I, I'm not sure whether it was his effort or his ability or his taking to coaching, but they really liked him, and he showed promise early on, but he, he suffered a broken bone, I think, mm-hmm. uh, like week two, week three, and it just completely ended the year. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think the Giant fan right now in February of 2019 thinks that he kind of is coming back is the savior. And I think expectations are a little through the roof of what he really is. I think he was, eh, you know, again, it was really hard to judge by the time he went down. Exactly. This was a, at the the bottom of the pit of the offensive line at the time, uh, is because he wasn't the worst of the worst. I think people have these expectations that him coming back is all of a sudden we are getting, you know, Alex Mack or somebody, or you know, uh, you know, a, a Pro Bowl center, and he's not that. I mean, I think who knows if he would have been healthy all year if he still would have even been the starting center in Week 15 or 16. I wouldn't put any money on Vegas that he would. I mean, he showed some potential, but again, as you said, this is not a blue chip, can't miss prospect. This is a guy that got off the scrap heap, and it'll be interesting to see how they address that with upcoming free agency draft cut down pickups. Yeah, I agree. Uh, So I said on a previous episode, I don't believe it was last week. I think it was two weeks ago or something when we were addressing the uh, looking back at the year. I said, there are three positions on the offensive line that need work. They need to be upgraded. If they upgrade two of them, they can they can expect a better offense, but it's going to take two. Uh, and that center is one of those. Uh, they can move forward with Jalapio, who is an exclusive rights free agent, um, if they choose, for cheap, as long as they upgrade right guard and right tackle. I'm not going to tell you which one I think is the most important because I'm really not sure right now. But to say that John Jalapio is the answer or the need it would be incorrect yes we are um, not we are not including him in the same comfort level that we are on the left side of the line for any no. 
But I think the one the one fortunate thing I think is that I don't think there is a very significant demand on the open market for John Halapia. I don't think there's going to be a bidding war. Well, I think for, there there are rules with exclusive rights free agents, right? Right, but I mean. I, I, I think it's something where another team can make an offer and you have the right to match it. Yeah. So but I, my, having said that, I don't see anybody coming in there and putting a poison pill offer on the table that's like, you know, the Giants would not be able to match. So I, I don't think that's something of a, a concern of risking of losing or overspending for a guy because I do not think they would overspend for him. Yeah, and, and quite frankly... As we move across the line, none of the guys that remained are worth overspending for. Uh, at a certain point in the year after Jalapio's injury, John Greco and um, Spencer Pulley became the centers. You know, showed some good things, showed some a lot of bad things. Right now, none of those guys are on the roster. Right now, if you were to have a game next week, your projected starter would be somebody named Evan Brown. Hmm. So something to keep in mind for Giants fans. Yeah. The only thing is as simple as, well, we'll just re-sign them because right now they are on the open market. Yeah. And again, I don't expect them to see ridiculous contracts around them, but, you know, the opportunity to start or be, you know, get paid more to be a capable backup might be out there too, so... And, you know, the opportunity to be on a better team than they are all right now, too. So my prediction is that I think they will try to upgrade this summer. I think they feel that Lapio is a backup plan at this point, but I think they will be actively trying to upgrade it. You know, my guess would probably be somewhere in the mid-rounds, maybe, of the draft. And, you know, uh, I, think, I think they want to build a core for this offensive line. They want, they want to make this core... Young, I think they have Will Hernandez. We said that uh, Solder's a little older than we would like to build for years on him, but you know he'll be around for a bit. I think they'd like to have a core, you know, for two of those three positions you discussed, being younger. Yeah, I agree. And and just because they, if they were to re-sign Jalapio, does not mean that they won't upgrade in the same year. That's true. Especially since he will assume it's assumed that he would come pretty cheap. And also, he has the ability to play a few different positions too. He does. He's very versatile. Yeah. He's not in center only though, you know. So that that gives him a little more value because you know injuries crop up on this team. If, even if we get a couple of guys, there's not going to be a lot of depth on the offensive line. So. Moving over to right guard, uh, so. Dave Gettleman signed Patrick Omame from the Jaguars to become the right guard. Well, that's not true. To play for the Giants. Later on, Will Hernandez fell to them in the second round. They decided that Patrick Omame did have experience on the right side. They moved him there where he did not perform well, and they gave up on him. They just dropped the contract. He was cut midseason. And later on, on the waiver wire, Jamon Brown just kind of fell to them. You know, it was a case of the Rams just needing a, a roster space and having too many good offensive linemen. And uh, so Brown came in and was it was like night and day with the offense. And that's not necessarily a whole bunch of um, sunshine to blow all over Jamon Brown. But it was the fact that they needed an upgrade in that in that spot. 
and he was an upgrade. Uh, he did have his struggles, but again, we're at a situation now where Jamon Brown was on a one-year deal, is no longer signed, and uh, the, the the right guard position currently would be manned by somebody named Nick Gates. So even if Brown were back, we would probably be looking at an upgrade scenario here, but he's not back. So this is a position that definitely needs to be addressed this offseason. Yeah, let's go back. Let's start this the beginning. Let's talk about Patrick Mamani for a second. Uh, were you surprised at the time that they just straight out cut him, knowing that you know this offensive line was kind of hanging by a thread, the depth was a concern? Because they cut him before um, Brown was available, if I remember correctly, right? You are correct. I although I think it was only one week went by or one game went by where you know, whatever, before right. Brown hit the market. But the, the, the waiver wire, the, actually. The plan wasn't to cut him on to sign Brown. It just kind of nope. right, fell to their left. Yes. Um, did I find it interesting? You know, at that point, I think it was right around where the season was pretty much lost. Uh, it mm-hmm. wasn't officially lost until there was only like three games left or maybe two games left. So, you know, it wasn't mathematically out, but it was at the point where it was understood that this team – you know, some of these stopgap solutions, and I I believed that Patrick Omame was a stopgap solution upon his signing. Um, some of the stopgap solutions... If not, if not on the signing, it definitely was once he drafted the prior oh, yeah. change for what he was. Um, yeah, I, I think that was just more of a culture move as much as anything, too. Because, again, the fan base, once they got off the Eric Flowers, you know... Uh, scapegoat wagon it turned to Patrick Patrick Well and, and to be fair to the fans, that was justified. Um yeah. you know when Dave Gettleman signed Omame, I I believe it was to man the left side. But he's always going to draft the best player that fits a need. And that was a left guard. So, you know, with the versatility Omame could play the right side. He just didn't play it very well. Now the fans saw a bunch of money go to a guy that was essentially useless. And that's that's a fair criticism that lands squarely on the shoulders of Gettleman. Uh, what doesn't is inheriting Eric Flowers. And he made what little he could of him by trying him on the right side. The coaches couldn't get it to work, so they cut bait. You know, there's no blame to be had for keeping a guy who's under a rookie contract and, and, and let's giving it a fan, shot. And listen up, you fan base. You can't have it both ways. You can't you know, complain that they're not spending any money to get talent and then bitch when it doesn't work out. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the time, you know, this offensive line was such a desperate need to be upgraded that these were the available guys who were out there. And we went out and we, we took a bit of a risk. And, right, nobody knew that Lohan would be available and be a better fit, a longer-term solution. And you were kind of hoping on that flexibility. I just mentioned the flexibility with a guy like John Hoppio. Well, they thought they had the same flexibility with him on the right side. Didn't work out. And I think that, you know, besides just take the, uh, the cap hit now and, and cut him and, you know, help out in, in future years. So. Yeah. And, and, you know, what, what were your thoughts on Jamon Brown's performance and stuff going I, forward? I think he was stabilizing. Uh, I think the fan base got a little too excited and thought he was another savior. And I think when you started hearing 
pretty quickly like, oh, they've got to resign him next year. I mean, it's, you know, it's a priority to bring him back. Let's not get crazy again. You know, this is a, the bar was so low for the level of, you know, with the expectation for success on this offensive line that just because someone was, you know, remember, was just cut by a, a Super Bowl team. Mm, yeah. You know, it's, uh, granted, you know, it was a numbers situation, but still wasn't good enough to be on an elite team. You know, that, I don't, I don't know what the fans' expectations are for this guy. They think he's like a pro bowler or something, and he's not. He's decent. And again, I, I do not think that they will offer a ton of money for him. I, you know, I, don't, I think he might have more value on the open market than you know, a Hapio would, but I don't think they're going to go crazy to resign him. There's a lot of guys that came in the league that will be available probably can get cheaper. I agree with that. Um, Continuing over to the right side of the line, uh, you know, we covered most of it. Eric Flowers started the year there. He was a disaster. It wasn't a disaster. It was the same disaster he was on the left side. He, um, was, a, he was a disaster. The decision to start him at right tackle was not a disaster because it was they had a plan to cut him anyway. So you might as well see if you, had, you can extract any value out of him, not only for this team, but maybe to trade him for anything. A six-round pick, a conditional pick, anything, maybe yeah. to showcase something. And unfortunately, he sucked. No value. And uh, he was replaced by Chad Wheeler, who was what we said he would be, um, a backup. Chad Wheeler is a backup at best. He can come in, and they will have to figure out a way to make it work, but that's it. Yeah, he's somebody. He's somebody that if you give a guy a blow for a couple snaps, you can hide him a little bit. But I think you know, if he's your starting right tackle, I think you game plan to attack him. Oh yeah, he's your weak link. Yeah, and you know, it comes down to it's just his skill set. He's just not great. I mean, smart enough, he goes to the right places. He tries to block the right guys, just not. Not great, but it's not lack of effort from a guy like him. But of all the problems on the offensive on the right side of the line, he's the only one who's actually under contract still. So he's got a leg up on the competition. And you know something, uh, rosters are built with guys like him. And everybody yeah. can't be making twelve million dollars a year and be a potential superstar. I mean, there is a place for a guy like him in this league. And there is a place for because you forgot to come on this roster. You kind of hope that he's one of these guys that, again, is good enough to give a real starter a blow. And they will, you know, he's being, his contract is really low, right? I mean, he was undrafted. He was undrafted free agent. Yeah, so what could he possibly be making? Next to nothing. And if you can get someone who gets paid next to nothing to give, you know, a handful of, of snaps in the game, that's value. Because this is a league where you need to maximize the value of every roster spot and every cap dollar. And for what it's worth, he's he's making six hundred forty-five thousand dollars. Yeah. So, so nothing. Yeah. Um, also means if they decide to get rid of him, the, the, the cap hit is negative. Yeah. So. 
That way you can you can take more of a risk on him than you would for somebody else, and you put you know, cut the cord whenever you need to. And and like you were saying, rosters are built on guys like this. Absolutely. Um, for for fans that are doing their, you know, fantasy draft this every single day and trying to figure out how the Giants can fix their problems. And I'm not making fun of you guys. I mean, I do the same thing when I'm bored at work. I just think about what the Giants can do to fix the team. They don't need to fix all five. There are no teams that have all pros at all five positions on the offensive line. The best ones have like three and then like two, maybe one that's kind of close, but there's still that one guy who's just, he's not in the conversation for the top of his position. It's not feasible to have an effective team where all of those resources are dumped into the offensive line. Having four solid members should be enough for an offense to move. If it's not, then you have problems elsewhere. Whether it be quarterback, running back, wide receiver, tight end, etc., or offensive coordinator, or or coaching yeah. too. Yeah. Um, so I think also this is you know this might be a bit of a tangent here. I think that Gettleman, Shermer, and Mara, to some extent, have a better sense of where this team is right now than maybe they did last year. I think last year there might have been a little bit of a Maybe around as bad as our record really was and some minor tweaking you can get back into the playoffs like we did in 2016. I think now that this team, I think everybody's on the same page realistically where they are. Like, it doesn't all have to... I, I think they know there's more of a rebuild than they maybe they thought they did. I also don't think that they think now it has to be done during Eli Manning's remaining time here, which I think they did last year. So that means they have a little more time to build the offensive line the right way instead of just cramming guys in there, overspending, screwing up their cap, you know, the balance of everything too. Yeah, I, I think I think all that's true. Um, and I think that they have, you know, when you have a guy that's been in the position of general manager for over a decade and, uh, you know, you're just sort of maintaining, but when you're not doing well and you're maintaining, you're not really doing anything. When you, we have a new guy come in, I assume he comes in and he's marketed a, a plan to the Maris, to the Tishes, and said, like, this is what we need to do. So, yeah, you know, I think after one year of the plan, you have a clearer indication of where you're at. So, But I think even, like, not even clear of where we are with the plan, I just think where we are just period. Again, I don't know, I wouldn't say the word delusional was the right word to use last year, but I think they tried to, you know, rebuild at the same time, but still have the hope that they could still sneak into the playoffs. That's almost impossible to do, to do both things. And I, I think ownership think, had that view? I think ownership, and I think, I think ownership had that view more than Gettleman and Shermer. I think Gettleman and Shermer needed a year to figure out really what they had. And I think the direction they may have received in the very beginning might have been, well, I think this team just had a bad year last year. We still have Eli. And let's try to make it happen while we still have Eli. I think they were thinking maybe he had both a toe on each side of the fence. Not necessarily that was all mandate, I just said, but that was some of the thinking. I think now they know that 
this is going to take longer than the shelf life of Eli. And it's, you know, unrealistic to think that they are a playoff team in 2019. So I think the moves they're going to make are going to be more according to that. And uh, starting with the tackle position, since that's where we left off, what kind of moves are we talking about? I think what they're going to do is I think they're going to invest in building this offensive line through the draft. I think they want to do it young. Um, if this was a team, if Eli was maybe four years younger, I think you might have seen it put more of an immediate plan to build up the line and probably spend more money than they probably wanted to to immediately shore it up. I think, you know, next year will most, most, most likely be Eli's last year, even if they sign him to an additional year for Kaepernick for 2019. And I, I think that counting on him to bring them to the promised land, I don't think is realistic anymore, even in their mind. So I think they will build this offensive line the right way and, you know, young and youth, they can grow together relatively inexpensive because there's no immediate rush. And, you know, it can't be any worse than it was last year. And, you know, Eli survived it. <laughs> so I think maybe it's one of those things where they just kind of, you know, there's no elite top level offensive lineman in this draft. No one that says, I need to pick this guy in the top five. So I think they're going to, you know, you're going to see with, with those 10, 11 picks we have, I think we have 12 now. I think they picked up another um, compensatory pick. Um, I think you're going to see some pretty big investment on the offensive line in the draft. Well, sticking with the tackle position, uh, I, I I find that there's two ways to look at it. And, you know, when you look at tackles in college, uh, you know, guys progress. They, they only stay at school for three years mostly, sometimes four. That first year, maybe you don't even see them as a fan and you're just there on the bench or, you know, the coach sees them in practice and they might move around. They're redshirting to build strength and weight. Right. In a good program. Depends on the program, too. Well, of course. Um, Use an example of John Taylor with Florida where he had to play right away because there was not the depth on the offensive line in Florida. You know, now in 2019 Florida, he would probably be a redshirt candidate his, his freshman year. So. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, when, when guys move around, you don't really know. You, you have to go off of very little to get a sense of where their spot is in the NFL. And some guys move all the fucking all over the place. Center, guard, tackle. They move everywhere. And other guys, you know, they just move from left to right. And uh, some guys move inside to out. Some other guys move outside to in. And some guys stay on the outside. And eventually, you know, that that works in college, but it won't work in the NFL given their skill set. So when I look at the hackles in this situation, the way the Giants are now, I see that there are two ways that they can do it. They can, because like you said, there is no Tyron Smith in this draft. They can draft a guy who played left tackle in college needs a little bit of development, but it could eventually replace Nate Solder in three to four years. Or they can draft a right tackle to play right tackle. 
and worry about left tackle later. And, you know, ultimately, I don't think that there's a specific plan. I think it's an option to keep open. It's like a long time to think about if someone to replace Nick Solder. Well, I mean, not really. So you think about it. Three years from now, his contract is up. He could be cut one year early if you have a cheaper, more dependable option there. So that's two years to play on the right side before moving to the left. I don't think is unreasonable. Possible, yeah, I can see that. And again, I'm not advocating for this. I'm just saying it's a possibility. Should the right guy fall to them? So when I say the right guy, the the guy I see that most likely looks like he's going to be a functioning left tackle in the NFL, there, in my opinion, are three of them. The first one is that I have highest rated for left tackle is Jonah Williams from Alabama. Now, I kind of flip-flopped around with who I had ranked where, but after watching them all back-to-back after the season, the college season was finally over, this is where I landed. Um, And, you know, there are a lot of knocks on him playing left tackle. For instance, he's only 6'4". He's only 297 as of right now-ish, reportedly. Um, You know, that's small for the left side. It's small for tackle. Um, But where Williams makes up for is his footwork. I mean, he's disciplined. He comes from Alabama. This is elite head coaching. You know, every year there are three offensive linemen at least coming from Alabama into the draft. Uh. And, you know, he may not overwhelm at left tackle, but he is in the right spot. He holds his own. Sometimes he needs help. Sometimes he doesn't. He's got great kick step. His feet, you know, stay underneath him. He latches on well. He has a good anchor. He's strong in the run game because Alabama is, you know, I would say typically a run first team with a stable of running backs. Yeah. Um, even even this year, I'd say they were even you know, more even with Tua. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, he gets he's not a, a pile driver. Tackles rarely are, um, but I mean, he gets that initial pop with some force. Uh, you know, sometimes he can lower his eyes when attempting to drive, which is something you don't want. But you know, he has okay strength, and it's mainly due to his technic uh, technicalities, his footwork, his pad level. Will he need to add weight and get some functional strength? Absolutely. But can he start at right tackle and eventually become a left tackle? It could happen, yes. Are you talking some of the Giants would target at where their current um, draft spot is at six? Are you talking second round? I don't I don't think that down? Jonah Williams yeah, I don't think Jonah Williams is going to command a lot of attention in the top ten. Um, you know, from anywhere from like it you know it's difficult to say there's a lot that can happen so anything i say here take with a grain of salt but my projection as of now is that jonah williams will be targeted anywhere between 18 and 40 and it's because there are serious limitations with things that he can't control like his size um i think a smart team cares a little bit less about something like that and the fact that he is well coached and you know played well given his limitations you know he didn't i i I look at a guy who's 6'4 297 and and plays well against the most elite competition the national championship level 
And I value that a lot more than someone who has, quote, ceiling, like Eric Flowers, who has all the measurables you want, can de- can be dominant based on God-given gifts, but needs to refine literally everything else. Has no technique yeah, yeah, exactly. No technique, no footwork. You know, eyes are all over the place. Weight is all over the place. Just doesn't play under control. And quite frankly, didn't seem to take to coaching no matter who was the coach. Exactly. Yeah. Good point. Um, for left tackle, I would say Jawan Taylor out of Florida is is another guy to consider. He he did play some left tackle, and I mean very, very little in, in game time last year in 2000, I guess, 17 season. 2000, yeah. I would say emergency, like a couple of series. I wouldn't yep. even call it even really playing left tackle. The, the scuttlebutt from him in Florida was there was some really legitimate talk he might come back for a senior year to learn how to play left tackle. Martez Ivy moving on after senior year this year. Um, I think he made the right move to leave now. Dangerous sport, you have a limited shelf life, you get the money, especially the projections are he's probably going to be a, you know, close to a top 10 pick. Mm-hmm. But his, you know, he'll learn how to be a left tackle probably on the fly in the NFL. Having an extra, having a year to learn at the college level. Might have been helpful for him, but I don't think enough to stay. Unless they want him to stay. Yeah, I I agree with all of that. Uh, You know, Jawan Taylor is an interesting story, and it's something I didn't really know until I was a guest on the Mark and the Cranky Fan podcast where they talked about all the draft-eligible Gators. Um, And what was interesting was that Florida didn't really care to have him on the team. He wanted to be on Florida. And in order to join, he had to lose a ton of weight. I mean, he was super heavy. He was like 400 pounds. Yeah, and he got himself down to playing weight at 350. He's now at 340, which is still a little heavy, but definitely playing weight. 340 is not considered overweight for his position at right tackle. And especially because he's 6'5". he is a good size, but that level of commitment to play to a program, I'm sure he could have gotten on to a UCF or a Florida Atlantic or, you know, Alabama state, but he wanted to be on Florida and he did what he had to do to make the team. Not only did he make the team, he broke into the starting lineup. He held on to his spot. He moved to the left side when needed. There's talk now that he would have taken over the left side. He played really well. He is Got a legitimate shot to be the first tackle taken off the board. He definitely oh, – I mean, remember when he first started at Florida, they only had six offensive linemen on scholarship. So he basically had to play. Mm-hmm. And, you know, over time as they developed, you know, more depth and everything and got better coaching last year, you saw that progression for the next step and the next step and the next step. So – yeah, and he does just about everything well. He gets into his position nicely. He has good sets and latches on. Um, you know, elite speed and inside moves, something that bigger guys are always going to have a problem with. I don't want to single him out as having an issue with that. It's because it's nothing we haven't seen from larger right tackles. Uh, something he can work on, sure. You know, in the run game, I mean, Florida is definitely a run-first team at this juncture. And uh, Yes, they, he is 
strong at the point of attack in the run game. He creates holes. Uh, and, you know, quite frankly, he's athletic for his build. He is constantly asked to execute combination blocks and pulls, and he works well on the move for his size. Um, my My thought is while he could become a left tackle in the NFL – he would be better he would have a better career being a right tackle. He mm-hmm. would be if he plays bookend with somebody along the lines of, you know, Nate Solder, somebody who's an above average left tackle, you know, he would be considered lockdown at that point. I mean Yeah, it's it's interesting, Grump, where there's two different schools of thought. It's like if he would have stayed in college to play left tackle, it's helping his own marketability. Not necessarily what's best for him for a career standpoint. Like, he'll probably be better as a right tackle. Yeah. So, you know, maybe it all works out that he comes out now and doesn't, uh, you know, try to play left tackle. He may not be as good as he was. And also, you know, know, who knows? So. Yeah. Uh, He is somebody that could definitely go in the top 15 range. It's, It's very hard to predict right now. Um, but he is being viewed, as far as I understand it, by teams as a potential left tackle. So he's being seen in that in that range. At this time, the tackle position is a little fluid. Quarterbacks screw everything up in the draft. There's a lot of defensive players in this draft. He could potentially fall to the late first round. I, I don't think he falls to the second round, though. Yeah, quarterbacks and tackles, it's just very fluky how these runs happen where, where teams panic. And, you know, they feel they're going to miss out if they don't get the opportunity. And, you know, it happens with quarterbacks and it happens with tackles. The other guy who I think can really, really play left tackle is Andre Dillard from Washington State. Uh, he, another guy who doesn't have the ideal wingspan and height. He's 6'4", but he's 3'10". He, he has good playing weight, just not super tall. Um, but I think he's probably the best pass blocker of all tackles in the draft. Um, you know... They're, they're NFL quality. He has great footwork and he keeps his weight underneath him. He controls rushers and creates a solid pocket. I mean, it's there's not a whole lot of science that goes into it, but you just watch the film and you can do it. <laughs> yeah, you know, in Washington State, not a not an overly dominant football team. So, yeah, had a good year this year though. They did. There was yeah. Um, I mean, they were one of those Pac-12 teams that were just in shootouts every single week and. You, you can't be in a shootout if if you don't have if a pocket. You have a good offensive, if you have a good offensive line, absolutely. You know, again, not a pile driver in the run game, but has a good first pop, which is what you need. You just pop and go. You you need the interior line to be driving. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, could he stand to add some strength? Yeah, sure, a little bit. It's six four. You're really going to need some lower body strength to make up for your lack of reach. Um, but you know, he's technically sound. He has great athleticism in space you know he gets to the second level with fluidity um he executes pulls and screens really well this is a guy who i think turns into a solid left tackle as well now would he's would he be excellent on the right side sure uh again you know famously i i think it was jeff schwartz i say famously and then i can't remember jeff schwartz i think <laughs> is the one who said that switching sides is a lot like wiping with the other hand so it's totally different and the same all at the same time. Uh, uh, let's just cover our bases really quickly. We get a guy who's a left tackle in the draft. Is there any way that Nate Solder goes to the right side or he's a left tackle and that's that? Is it possible? I, I would say more down the line than next year. I, I, there, if there were a Tyron Smith in this draft 
and there isn't. You know, even then, it's kind of a stretch that you want to throw a rookie right in at the left side when you have an established starter there. I just figured, you know, trying to think outside the box with this team because, again, you know, as we're saying that Nate Solder is our guy for the next couple of years, I don't think, you know, he's not the rock we're going to build everything around. So I just want to see what the odds were. Agree, yeah. You know, there's there's some other guys at the tackle position um, that are commanding a lot of attention, and it's uh, Greg Little from Ole Miss. Um, and, you know, to me, he underwhelmed, and I think to a lot of people he underwhelmed. He's He's got the size. He's got everything that you want, 6'6", 325, but everything just looks a little sloppy, and he, he plays down to competition. Uh, you know, I would say even when you're watching him uh, – there might be a little bit of effort questioning. You know, a lot of this is going to sound like Eric Flowers, and it should be noted that the difference there is that Flowers played an S- a very, very weak ACC at the time, uh, whereas Greg Little plays at the SEC West. Yeah, and, and was still successful. Um, and it's going to come down to his effort in coaching. So that's going to be in the interviews for the Combine and things like that. And um, also, to be fair, the old Miss had to deal with the... the uh, they get rid of Hugh Freeze, Hugh Freeze a year before, kind of a year in transition where, you know, a lot of guys from the old regime and stuff. So I wouldn't put too much stock in what happened to that team yeah. last year. They were kind of a mess. Yeah, but again, it, if with him, it's it's the opposite of you know what we say with technicians with Jonah Williams and Andre Dillard. He's got the size that he built to play the position, but has not really developed all the little things that make someone successful at the position. So mm-hmm. while he is coveted by some people, um, I would if I don't think the Giants are in a position to be taking a guy like this. Would you agree with that? I agree. I agree. You know, I think if they were, you know, one offensive lineman away and they were drafting later in the first round or, you know, they decide to use their high second round pick, that's another story, but that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Um, Two other guys that are discussed that I don't think very highly of are Dalton Reisner out of Kansas State who played right tackle. You know, just looks slow and chunky to me, doesn't ever dominate, looks to me like he'll be a career backup. And David Edwards from Wisconsin who took several steps backwards. One AFC scout, according to Charlie Campbell, said uh, that he played like shit last year. And that's that's a big thing to say for an entire year. It's not a bad yeah. game, you know. Yeah, you didn't get dominated in one play. That's that's a long time to yeah. to, to blast somebody for it. Yeah. Um that's really the tackle position. As far as free agents go, you know, I, I think like you said, I don't know that they're gonna be spending big money. But if they were, I do think that there's at least one guy who fits the age range that they can build around and plays the position, right? And that's Jawan James. Mm-hmm, right. I know there's guys like Trenton Brown who are going to be out there potentially, but uh, I wouldn't overspend for a guy like that who just seemed to be in the right place, right time with New England last year. I would agree with that. I think I think James actually has a longer track record of being successful despite being on a shitty team. But what does that mean, though? That means he's going to be expensive. And I, I oh, again, yeah. I don't... I don't think they want to spend big bucks in that position when there's so many defensive issues they have to, to deal with and uh, other things. So I, I I think it's going to be slow and steady with the offensive line, not making any splashes during free agency. And I think you'll see, uh, you know, 
they're going to try to get a, a diamond in the rough or two in the draft, and, and, and we'll see how kind of at the top. I, I, I think the Giants are in a good position where it's not a heavy draft for uh, for offensive line this year. With a lot of you know pass rush guys, guys like that are going to be taking a lot of the top spots. I think some guys that they may be kind of targeting might drop to the second or third round. So hopefully that's an advantage for them. Yeah, and you know, let's let's be serious. You know, with all the holes, they're going to have to spend some money somewhere, um, probably in multiple spots. So, you know, there isn't an Andrew Norwell really in this right. free agent class that will be a building block to be around. And Jawan James is probably the closest thing there is, and he is certainly not, you know, of that caliber. And you know, quite frankly, the defense needs an overhaul as well. So. You know, Andrew Norwell was somebody that they had targeted last year early on as being a a part of a big fix, and it was he was a target that was um, in their sights before the draft. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think Juwan James' agent is too silly to ink a deal before the draft, and therefore, I think the Giants probably look to the draft to figure out what the hell they're doing. And if it comes to a tackle, then Juwan James is just off the map. They're not going to spend the money for it. If they end up going another route with center or guard, then he might stay on the table. At the right guard position, um, I think they're the Giants are in kind of the same position they are at the center spot where they have a guy that they could resign for probably cheap but should stand to upgrade. And that person is Jamon Brown. Yeah, he's going to command a little bit more attention on the market and a little bit more money than John Jalapio, but still it's a guy that they should um, upgrade. Nevertheless, I mean, given the lack of depth on the team, uh, you know, re-signing Jamon Brown wouldn't be a bad idea. At the same time, the draft, I, I I feel like I've been talking about the right guard position in the draft for the last like seven years, but there are a couple of uh, guys to consider. Boston College has somebody that I really like, and that's Chris Lindstrom, and it's because he's a technically sound, um, you know, right guard. It's, he's, he's at 6'3", 303. He's got good size. Um, he has... What impressed me the most was his tape against Clemson, which obviously is going to be, um, you know, a real test because that's like a real NFL defensive front that they're playing against. And uh, what I noticed is that while he didn't always win his one-on-ones, he typically won. He did well enough. I mean, like stalemates. In the ground game, he was able to drive a little bit. and that's because he plays with excellent pad level and leverage. He uses good hand placement, and uh, he's able to manipulate and drive defenders. He's got pretty advanced strength, I would say, and uh, it's because he's well put together. He's got an NFL body type. Um, he's not overly athletic, but he can move um, and well. But what most impressed me was he was intelligent. Nothing that Clemson threw at Boston College confused him. He was able to pass off defenders in stunts. There were no inside blitzes that really blew him up. Um, you know, definitely somebody that, that this team can build around and would be an upgrade. Uh, also, you know, somebody else to, to consider would be Cody Ford. 
um, who played tackle at Oklahoma, but I, I personally think is better off in the in, inside. Um, and I'm not usually one of those people who says that, but you know, I, I think he, he sometimes stands a little bit too tall. He's a little chunky with his footwork, which, you know, gets him in trouble in space and he performs better in a phone booth in my opinion. Um, you know, I, I think that when it comes to the run game, he can really, really be tenacious and he can really drive. Um, he's got excellent strength because he's got a good body size, 6'5", 340. He's heavy. Um, you know, he's not overly athletic. I don't I don't know that the right guard position in Pat Shermer's office needs to be, you know, overly athletic, but he can move, obviously. Um, it just looks like, you know, he looks like he's labored a little bit when he runs. Um, you know, personally, okay. So the other thing is he's, he's very intelligent. He knows he's very aware. He knows that he needs to be looking for work if, you know, his guy is down or not there or whatever. Um, and he always puts in great effort. The thing is for me is I just, you know, again, this is, this is a developmental guy in my opinion. Uh, he, he just looks like he's been all over the line, in college and maybe hasn't settled at one spot and I'm not sure where he belongs. Um, and that's no fault of his. I think that he'll take to good coaching and, and be good in this league. Uh, Michael Dieter from Wisconsin played left guard. I, you know, I actually liked him. You know, I, I like interior defensive uh, interior offensive linemen from big 10 schools. I think they tend to churn them out in Wisconsin is certainly a, you know, benchmark, uh, this past year was a down year for that. As I mentioned, you know, Bobin Schwazel was a guy I really wanted to keep my eye on and he was disappointing. Uh, same thing with, um, the, the tackle, uh, David Edwards was super disappointing, but I think Michael Dieter played right to my expectations. He's got good size too at six, five, three Oh four. He plays with good anchor and base in the past game, which Wisconsin did more than I expected this year. Uh, and he keeps his man in front of him. You know, he would probably struggle with a quicker interior rusher, but he'll he'll never really be dominated, I don't think. Um, in the ground game, he, he plays with good pad level and with drive. Um, you know, he, he does have a tendency at times to lunge. Once he's gotten in the habit of really driving guys, he might just, you know, force it and get, get played. Um but he's got solid lower body strength to help in the ground game and move defenders. Um, I think that with good coaching and some work in the weight room, he could be a real option for the Giants at right guard. Um, there are some hybrids between center and guard. Guys who played both spots can play both spots. So while I'm going to get into some of them, I'm also going to address John Jalapio at the same time. You know, in a perfect world, the Giants would be um, able to roll with Jalapio. They were very high on him last year, and he would come very cheap this year. I also think that that's short-sighted. Even if they were high on him, I don't imagine him having more productive years after one to two. So there actually are a lot of decent centers in this draft. Uh, But before I get to strictly centers or guys who I think should play center, 
uh, I'll talk about some more uh, guards. And, you know, somebody who looked pretty good, in my opinion, was Connor McGovern from Penn State, played center last year. Uh, I guess Saquon Barkley's last year at Penn State, and then this past year played guard, and I thought played really well. Um, he's 6'5", 312, you know, big boy. And one of the things I really liked is that he's really quick to put his hands on defenders and manipulate them. Um, when it comes to ground, uh, the ground game, he fires out of his stance and attacks. And he plays with good height despite being 6'5". You know, he he shoots up, makes his initial hit low, and then stands up to stand his guy up. Um, he could keep his head up a little bit more, but otherwise he plays under control. He's, he's not a mauler, but he is a mover. Um, he will push people out of the way. He's got functional strength because of his huge body size. Um, and I think he moves well into the second level. When it comes to... Um, Pass protection, I think that he controls well for his size. Uh, he is a solid anchor and a base. Um, the biggest thing is I think he's a little bit slow to identify things, and I think some of that comes with you know rough quarterback play. Um, and also, again, you know, a guy who hasn't really settled at one position. Um, I think he looks like more of a guard to me in the ground game. Maybe he's a little bit more solid as a center in the passing game, but it's a little bit easier to play center in the passing game. So you're sort of more often than not helping left or right instead of being solely responsible. He's got some things to clean up technically, but I I, I do like the idea of Connor McGovern, you know, later on in the draft. Um some guy that's that's getting a little bit of buzz is Michael Jordan um, from Ohio State, guard center. You know, I with him, I don't see it as much. I, you know, there are things to work with, right? Six six three twelve, another big boy. He's got a solid base in the in the passing game. I mean, I just don't know that he really gets his base too well in pass protection. I think he gets pushed backwards a little bit. I don't think he drives his man well because he's often too high and he tends to just kind of like overwhelm with size, which is not going to work at the next level. And I think also he tends to just kind of, there's a distinction between driving your man into the ground and stalemating into the ground. That's sort of a win for the defensive lineman. If you're not actually pushing him out of the hole when you fall down, you just create a big mess. And he seems to be the product of a big mess in the middle, which is not what you want. Um, and I think that he's not really fluid in space either. I think he's big, slow, and lumbering, and I think he has trouble at the second level. More importantly, I think that sometimes he looks indecisive in where he's trying to go in pass protection. I mean, he was a center for much of what I scouted, so he should be helping. But I think a lot of times he decides, I'm going left. And then, you know, if the guy going left loops all the way around, he just continues that typewriter work with his feet all the way to the left instead of checking his right side first. And I, I think that he's a bit ex- inexperienced. I think he should have stayed at school for another year. I think he would have benefited, but he didn't. Moving to center, um, there are three really good candidates here. Um, the number, the I think the number one guy that people are talking about are Elch, is is Elston Jenkins from Mississippi State. Um, he's a hog molly. I'll say it up front. Um, 
The man moves people. The biggest drawback is not getting his hands on defenders early, which is admittedly difficult for a center because you're starting with his hand, your hand on the ball. Um, but he's he. What what amazes me is that despite not getting his hands on defenders early, he gets pushed back, but he's able to recover an anchor. He might lose a foot stepping backwards, but he stalemates there and then pushes back. Um, I do think that he should work on getting his hands on the defenders first. That needs to be something that it gets uh, fixed because he can get bullied a little bit when the hands get on him first, but he, he recovers really well and it's all due to great, great lower body strength uh, advanced for where he's at. Um, and in the, in the ground game, he gets actual push keeps his feet moving and can solo on large nose tackles and, and win. Um, looks to me like the kind of guy that Dave Gettleman would fancy. Um, another guy that I haven't been hearing a whole lot about, but I really like this tape was Eric McCoy from Texas A&M. Um, I think that he would whether it's center or guard would play really well. And and what sticks out is an intangible and it's that he plays with nasty. He throws his body into defenders and then just keeps chugging his feet. Despite being six three three ten, he's not one of the big boys. Um, and, and he doesn't really have, uh, you know, NFL strength. It's definitely something that can still be developed for him. He wins based on proper technique and attitude. He wants to win. There's not a whole lot of standing around looking. Um, but, you know, he he latches onto a guy and he just mauls them. He's a mauler. Um, and I think that he has good anchor and sets his feet well in the pass protection game. I think he's... What what really moved me was his tape against Clemson, which Texas A&M very nearly mounted a comeback. Um, particularly, Dexter Lawrence was completely missing from that game. Um, and a, a center that's getting a lot of attention is Garrett Bradbury from NC State. Uh, I think he's got good size with 6'2", 304. I think that he sets a decent anchor in pass protection. I think he has solid footwork. Um, I think that he can win one-on-ones in the run game. I don't think he's ever really dominant, though. Uh, I do think that he needs to add some strength. Um, But he does play at the proper pad level to help with his lack of strength. Um. I think that he works best in space. He's really fluid mover with quick feet and he plays under control. Uh, I think that he's a perfectly good center to draft and develop. I'm just not sure if he fits into Gettleman's hog molly branding. Now, of course that could all just be branding, but if that's something that they truly um, covet, I'm not sure that he's a fit for that, but that doesn't mean he won't be a fit for the team. And Grump, we have this week coming up, we have the combine where we're going to be a little more into focus, you know, potentially how this, these uh, prospects are going to shake out like in order of uh, desirability in the draft. So I, I'm not sure how much you are a guy who likes watching guys 
run around in their undies, but uh, I'll be definitely watching for quite a bit this weekend. <laughs> That's the kind of guy I am. Yeah, no. Um, uh, the, the combine, I think, is very important, and I think that it's, you know, a lot can be told about that, but for me, it's not something I ever really watch. You know, I look at the numbers as they're reported, and if I feel like I need to see it with my own eyes, I will. Watch yeah, a highlight, but two things about it. One, it's really for the scouts and the general managers and the player personnel people, more so from the fans. They know what they're looking at, what's more important than we do. And two, to me, it's kind of like watching some of these Olympic events where, you know, I see a guy run the 40, but he's not running against anybody. So it's mm-hmm. just watching guys run. You know, they're not competitions, they're just trying to maximize their own personal scores. So it's it's thrilling for me. I mean, it's all if it's on, I'll kind of take a look. But uh, I'm not going to be spending the entire weekend. Not not to go off on a on a super tangent, but it'll be interesting this year among others. You know, the NFL has tried to make the combine exciting, right? Watchable TV, and there are losers who will watch it and would have watched it anyway, right? (laughs) That's that's fine, but they've tried really hard to make it more accepted, and I don't think it's really worked. I mean, maybe a little bit here and there, but if you've ever tried to watch it, it's like... Well, the good thing is there's no more Mike Mayock doing it, so... You think that's a good thing? Uh, yeah, he... Guys, like, he just kind of bugged me. Maybe okay. it was that Philly accent, maybe it was just that everything is a superlative, what he had to say, and, you know, spoken... Uh, Hyperbole with everybody, but uh, you know, well, wasn't my guy. I mean, what what I'm saying is that you know they have commentators that know what they're talking about, uh, whether that be Mayock or Eisen or Jeremiah, <laughs> whoever. Um, but in between stuff, you have like Deion Sanders talking to guys after they ran the forty, and like I just don't care. Yeah. Like it's not they're trying, but it's not working. But this is the first year now where there will be AAF football on this weekend. <laughs> And do you notice something, Grump? This is the first week they actually flexed out games. That is. I thought they, that was weird. Orlando got flexed to the Saturday night primetime game. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, I've always had that what if, if Steve Spurrier ever coached against Dennis Erickson, and I have my dream come true this weekend. Yeah. Um. <laughs> But it will be interesting to see how the ratings affect everything here. And I'm not saying one or – I mean, it would be interesting to see if the combine gets more or less than last year, if this week for the AAF is up or down. You know, there's not a whole lot of precedent to really judge on, but there is actual football watchable TV versus what I consider unwatchable garbage. Yeah, well, I mean, I'd be curious to see how it does against Saturday Night NBA because that is on ABC. It is on a network and, you know. I'd be curious. Um, I will say I don't think the AAF's real competition is is the NBA. I think it's in March Madness. Yeah. That's going to be tough for them to beat. Well, oh, absolutely. I mean, it, I haven't seen the TV ratings last weekend. They were late coming out, which is always a bit of a concern. But uh, they did say that attendance is only about 30% capacity after week three. Hmm. And that's not good because they're probably getting next to nothing in TV revenue, so they're relying on gate. If you're getting these places getting, you know, 10,000, 11,000 people, 
Not good. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's going to be weird, you know, as they... It, it, it's too early to look for trends. Uh, this was, I believe, Atlanta's first home game, and they have not <laughs> yet won a game, so I wouldn't expect a whole lot of people to show up. Well, I think, I think there were three teams that had home openers last weekend, so... Yeah. But well, at it, this point, you know, I don't think play people are really worrying about wins and losses at this point. If they if they want to check it out, they're going to check it out. Kind of like, you know, hey, I got tickets to a minor league baseball game. Let's check it out. I don't think they're really worrying at this point about how good or bad these teams are. I mean, if the team is one and nine, scored nine points all year, that might impact it. But right now, I think there's more than anything like a curiosity factor. I mean, is it complete garbage? Is it entertaining? You know, all the fluff associated with games that we don't really care about, but that's bringing people in. Well, well here, here's something that's bringing people in, and it's part of that curiosity factor. They're, probably the most interesting thing uh, happened, and it was their their replacement for an onside kick is a 4th and 12 conversion from your own 28, I think. Mm-hmm. And it happened this past week where it was converted. He scored a touchdown on it? No, he almost actually. <laughs> um, but you know, all you have to do is is convert the fourth and twelve, and you get the ball back after you score. I think it's like under five minutes, down by X amount of points or whatever. But it's a legitimate alternative solution to the onside kick. Well, now since they changed the rules, how you can't get a running start or anything for onside kick, it's almost unless it's the last play of the game. We have no other alternative. There's no point to an onside kick anymore. The percentages were way down this year. Yeah. Because they just made it basically impossible to recover. If we if we see more onside kick scenarios that are converted, so you know, you, you draw up plays for situations. You draw up plays for two point conversions. And I guess you you're gonna have to start drawing up plays for a fourth and twelve conversion. And if it starts to work it may be a rule that's adapted into the NFL, both of those things. Yeah, I, well, I mean, I think they're going to see, again, because it's so much harder to recover an onside kick, becomes a what's the point. And if no one does it anymore, you know, for some reason the league feels they have to tinker with things that don't need tinkering. Mm. You know, there was absolutely no reason to push back the extra point uh, kick. They wanted to make kicking more exciting, and instead they just made yeah, fans but, hate kickers more. Well, the thing about it is it's not a question of making a kick more exciting. Everything that has to be exciting, it's there's a decision. Do mm-hmm. I want to take the, 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 the whole point of the two-way conversion when they brought it in was, do I want to give up the for sure, you know, I put that in air quotes, but pretty much the for sure one point to risk going for two. Mm-hmm. But now if you're saying the for one point isn't for sure anymore, I, it just doesn't, there's no logic to it. It's, it's, it's not making the kicking more exciting. It's just more trying to increase the chances of you going for two, which is not the point. The point is, do you want to guarantee yourself one or take two? Your risk. Stupid. Yeah. It's just dumb. <laughs> All right, Grump, it's time to go to bed. We've been talking for five hours now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, you can catch more of my analysis on Twitter at, at football underscore Grump. And this podcast is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. Uh, it's on SoundCloud. Someday I will get to the, the iTunes bug <laughs> that we've been having now for months. You know what it is? 
one of you guys, somebody tweet me at the Cranky Fan this week and remind me. The first person who does will send you a prize. <laughs> might be so, Nick's tickets. It might could be Nick's tickets. So if anybody out there is actually listening to this show, um, tweet at me during the week to remind me to fix the iTunes problem. And uh, first person does, I'll give you, I'll give you a little treat. Not wow. a not a treat that was. A, Gotten Jupiter, Florida this year. I mean, <laughs> something Giants related. And Mike can be found at, at the Cranky Fan if you're going to tweet at him. Yeah, please do that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. We'll see you next week. Go Giants. Go Giants.